Hello and welcome to another Film File Just The Reviews, a collection of some of the reviews from some of the earlier episodes of the show. Now in this compilation you're going to find us covering the films that we spoke about in episodes 11 through to 15 and that list is quite a big list some of them were only small snippet reviews but we did cover the grudge 1917 uncut gems rhythm section beautiful day in the neighborhood parasites lighthouse birds of prey sonic the hedgehog the invisible man dark waters onward and our first retro look back deep dive highlander because this was the set of episodes that led up to lockdown number one and once it gets to that Highlander discussion, you can tell that we shifted from being able to sit around a table to having to do this remotely, and we were testing the waters. Anyway, hope you enjoy these reviews, and if you want to get in touch, we're over on Twitter, at FilmFileUK, we're on Instagram, FilmFileUK, or you can email us, podcast at FilmFile.UK. That's podcast at FilmFile.UK. We'd love to hear from you. Let us know a film that you'd like us to deep dive on in a future episode. And please like, share and subscribe. Enjoy the show. So the main film this week to talk about is The Grudge. Something terrible happened in this house. Now anyone who enters, we're all bound together. Hello? Police department. This will never end. What will never end? The Grudge. And you braved this on your own because I let you down at the, at the, at the press show. Yeah. I want to get some historical context in here. Since 2003, when I first saw Jew on The Grudge, the J-horror, I have loved The Grudge films. Even I'm, the second Grudge? I'm a fan of The Grudge films. Uh, even The Second Grudge? I've got a lot of love was that, for. Was that Grudge 2 more Grudge? <laughs> the Grudge. <laughs> Due on the Grudge 2. Simple as that. That I mean, it was released in 2002 in Japan and then it got like a subtitled version for the UK audience in 2003, which is when I, I, I watched it late at night at home and I couldn't get off the couch at the end of it to switch the light on because it messed with my head so much. I just ended up just like pulling a blanket over my face and trying to go to sleep. It was a proper twisted, disturbed horror film, and I loved the aesthetic of that kind of J-horror. And then we got the remake, didn't we? The US remake. Well, then we got the US versions, which started out okay, because original director Takeshi Shimizu uh, was still on board for that and the second US version. Sarah Michelle Gellar and Bill Pullman. Yeah. They missed the psycho-trauma approach of the originals because they added in, like, an orchestra to tell you when to jump and doing the cat-behind-the-curtain kind of, like, jump-scare moments. Everything you expect from a US film. But they still had some merit and they still kept the lore and the mythos. Over the past decade, the J-horror franchise returned itself with spin-offs such as Black Ghost and White Ghost that told different stories, but within that kind of framework. And then the actual back-to-the-core story of that family and that house with the beginning of the end, the final curse. And then, bizarrely, Sadako versus Kayako, which pitted the ghosts from Ringu and Jew on against each other, battling. I'm so glad I missed that. It's not a good film. I could have told you that before you've even <laughs> had to say that was not a good film. Um, but whilst the quality of the films over the whole franchise has been wobbly, for want of a better phrase, nothing could have prepared me for the horror 
of the latest film. So let's set the scene. This is a, a US uh, reimagining reboot of the for the Grudge series. It's a parallel story running alongside the US first and second films. And it stars John Cho, who you'll know from uh, Star Trek, and in the and Harold and Kumar. And in the third series, uh, second series of the fantastic Exorcist TV series. Yep. Um, where does it go wrong? And where does it go right? Or does it go at all? It's it's an absolute it's absolutely dreadful. It doesn't feel like a grudge story. It feels like a generic possession story, which the possession spreads from one person to another to another to another, where they've deliberately just gone. Uh, can we shoehorn in a reference to the grudge? Oh yeah, let's just tack on a scene right at the start of the film, set in Japan like with the old house from that original one, and pretends that the curse has now been passed on for no reason at all. And then it does... I mean, what the Grudge films are known for as well is telling things out of sequence and it'll jump backwards and forwards in time to give you, like... Keep you off balance, basically. And it works well with them. With this, it feels as though they took the script, threw it up in the air, and then gathered the pages up at random and just decided to film it in that order. Because it just... it It's a mess. It jumps backwards and forwards for no... Apparent reason. It's not like it's telling you a bit of backstory at a relevant point. It's just moving over to this character two years earlier, and then over to this one three years later. Absolutely pointless mechanism to use. It's just a generic horror film, and it's not even a good one at that. It relies so much on jump scares, and the jump scares are signposted as a jump scare can be. You've got a cello. Is there a cellist in the scene? And then it goes quiet. The actress or the actor will let out a sigh of relief as nothing's there. One, two, three, four, five. Boom! And bear in mind, I was sat on my own watching this because no one came to join me. I'm so sorry. And you can hold it against me for an awful long time. And this was the early hours of the morning. Now, bear in mind what I said about the very first film, that I watched that on my own at home early hours of the morning and couldn't get off the couch because I was so scared by the end of it. By the end of this one, I couldn't wait to get out the screen. And I, I was let out a sigh of relief when the credits came up. It's like, oh, you'd think, thankfully it's over. You'd think by now, studios would have realised that the J-horror craze that went on for an awful long time did not translate well to the US market. It didn't. I mean, cause the, the J-horrors have a particular style. And for me, it's the sound more than anything else in the J-horrors. In this new entry into the franchise, they even forcibly have every one of the possessed creatures doing that guttural <laughs> sound wow. that only one character did. One of the ghosts did in the original Grudge. But now all of them do it. Anyone who dies and comes back as a ghost does that sound for no reason. You get a very tickly throat, though, when you die. It's you do. It's a, it's, yeah, it's a just a lozenge. If you just, give, just give them a locket, you'll be fine. <laughs> They, they can't get the tone right because they're adding the orchestra. They're not having the disturbing white noise sounds or weird background light wobbles. And they're keeping it too clean. It's too precision-led rather than feeling unnerving and offsetting. And that was always the thing with, with J-Horror for me. It it did have a sort of an off-kilter approach to it. Um, Gore Verbrinsky did the, the Ring. The Ring adaptation. Adaptation. Yeah. And it was just too clean and music video-y, lucky. And rather than that sort of almost realistic approach, that sort of dark around the edges feel that J-Horror did very, very well. And and there are two different languages. Japanese filmmaking and, and US filmmaking, European filmmaking are different languages. And the, the conceits don't necessarily cross. Everybody just sees a monster or a ghost or whatever and, and thinks that's what it'll take to make it work. Because because the ring in, in the American version spent most of it trying to explain the plot. Yep. Instead of just letting it be 
it was all a, the discovery of what was on the videotape. I wouldn't even limit it to uh, J horrors. They, they they do this all the time, like rack with quarantine. They just take a idea from a different branch of cinema that's vibrant and told within its own sort of languages, and they just homogenize it. Yeah, throw it out there. Few jump scares that'll that applicate our horror audience. Move on to the next one, and that's become the the language of most modern horror. That it is jump scares. It's the quiet, quiet bang. Mm. Yeah, and and just just to just to point out one film that did work for me, which was a, an adaptation, was uh, Let Me In, Matt Reeves's film. Yeah, because that stayed true to what the original film was about, and and had, a, had that sort of underscore of it being about childhood rather than just being about a monster. I think that's probably the only time I think it's worked really well. So you've got a grudge against the grudge. I've got a huge grudge against this film. It is the worst of the franchise. It can't even be considered as a film so bad that it's funny. It's a film so bad that it's dull and lifeless. Not one of the scares actually scared me. Nothing made me jump. And I just felt nonchalant about it by the end of it. And it died at the box office. So this is the palate cleanser that I mentioned earlier on the show. This film has now set my expectation of films so low for the rest of the year that I am going to enjoy the heck out of so many more films. I can't wait for your review of Doolittle now. (laughs) (laughs) What else is out in the cinema at the moment? What are we looking forward to? What's playing? Uh, 1917 still doing gangbusters box office wise. Yeah, I mean, I've had a chance to see 1917. It's doing great business at the box office and deservedly so. For those who don't know, it's Sam Mendes' war film following two young soldiers racing through the trenches and into no man's land as they race to get a message to the frontline forces to stop a big Porsche that is leading into an ambush. A single take approach through the film draws you into the characters because you are thrown to just follow them and you they're, they're your link to this world. And their journey through the film is so impressively done because it, it, it's done in a way that where they start, they're still fresh, ready soldiers, ready for fight. It's like, yes, yeah, the war, da, 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 and they're still up for it. And then as they travel through, they get to like the border for no man's land where the troops are so fed up of it that they got like Andrew Scott as a very nonchalant commanding officer, just like, oh, this will never be over. If you, you, you really want to go over there, that's on you guys, kind of attitude. And so they've lost the passion for the fight then you get over the other side of no man's land. The allied soldiers that they encounter there are the invading soldiers. So they're up for fighting and they're still gung ho. And then you get to the like ones who've been in the war so long that they just want to die. And it's a great journey to show all aspects of war. But what makes it more striking? Cinematography. Which is Roger, the great Roger Deakins. Great Roger Deakins, who shows once again that he's a master of getting perfect shots and beautiful images there's one sequence in it set at night running through ruined village and the only lighting is the signal flares going up and it casts a very eerie surreal kind of nightmarish view towards the whole thing you sit watching it going is this real or is it in his imagination then you're like oh no it is real it's too real and it's beautifully done to really throw you into like that this is the horror of war absolutely marvelous film i can't recommend this film enough it will be running for a while because it's still doing business it's one of them that is just going to keep bringing people back and the award nominations that it's getting well deserved so before we get round to the main review there's a lot of films out at the moment and there's a lot of things worth seeing either at the big screen or on the small screen so let's just do a quick whiz through of some things that we've not got around to talking about because they've just been out of our schedule but we've had a chance to see so uncut gems 
Have either of you guys seen Uncut Gems yet? It's Adam Sandler? No. Top of my watch list. It's on the watch list, which is the ever-growing watch list. It seems to be a very divisive film. I've seen some people like rating it one out of five and saying it's a, it's just a, a shouty mess. I absolutely loved it. It's fast-paced, it's erratic, and yes, everyone's shouting over each other in that New York way that people do when they're arguing. And Sandler gives a fantastic performance throughout. It's it, it's made it that there's now five Sandler films that I have time for. Things you would never have thought you'd ever say. What are the other four out of interest? Waterboy's one of them. I feel like reaching over the table. <laughs> <laughs> My other four are... Punch Drunk Love. Punch Drunk Love. Jack and Jill are one film. You can't count them twice. <laughs> <laughs> Cruising for a bruising, mate. <laughs> Rain Over Me. Funny People. Um, which I thought was very daring because he's basically playing himself. I liked Funny People. The Mayorowitz stories. Oh, yeah. And this makes oh, okay. the fifth one. Yeah. I don't rate his comedies. I feel that... Oh, were they comedies? I feel, I feel that in, <laughs> funny, in funny People, when he's playing this act, one stand-up comic who's now a big name yeah. in the cinema and all his films are just mediocre comedies because people are playing to pander to his attentions rather than creating good scripts, he was representing himself. That was him. And that's why I love that film because he was he was opening himself up. And saying I'm a jerk. Yeah. However, I did rate his um, Netflix stand-up special last year. I absolutely adored that. I thought that that's what he perfect, he's perfect at, stand-up comedy. I just don't like his films with comedy. When he does acting, he can deliver. He can, it's like a lot of comedians that got that ability and, and, and they're sort of the way that they present their humour, they've got that good dark side. You know, when Robin Williams went into playing darker characters like uh, One Hour Photo, they did it so well because they've got something about them. They're charismatic and they've got that... They, they can portray that dark side very, very well. What else have you got for us? Uh, so we both got to see Rhythm Section. Yeah, which is uh, the film I was going to mention earlier that, that bombed for Paramount last weekend. Why did it bomb? I thought it was a pretty good film. Yeah, I mean, uh, my only criticism of it, and I've mentioned this to Scott, is that it felt like it was a sky a drama more than anything else. And the first half of the film is a bit like it, things just jump forwards and jump forwards and jump forwards without any flow. But it gets to the midpoint of the film and it suddenly becomes like compelling, gripping and tension building. So if you don't know it, it's Blake Lively. She plays a, a British character. It's based on a series of books by the guy who wrote the screenplay. Uh, and I and it's produced by, by Barbara Broccoli. So it felt to me like it was almost like the pilot to see if we've got a franchise going here. And I think the hope was that they, they had. I think Blake Lively was fantastic in it. She really underplayed it. She goes from someone who's rock bottom to someone who's fiercely independent and sure of herself. So she becomes uh, an assassin. She's trained by Jude Law, who I thought stole the movie. I thought okay. he was the heart of the movie. And it's a, it's a very realistic journey that she goes on. It's not instantly she becomes Jason Bourne, a female Jason Bourne. There's, it's not an easy route, and that's the, the heart of the film. It's a little bit of a, a predictable uh, storyline as far as regards it's a revenge film with some nice twists and turns, but... It, it, it was kind of underplayed a lot and that underplaying meant there was no sort of huge gravitas scene to it. And I think what really killed it, what really killed it was the title because you mention it to anybody, it doesn't sound like an assassin movie. I know it's based on the first novel and, and it's the title of the first novel. And if you're a fan of that, they're great, but it, it didn't sell it because I think it's, you know, you see it on a billboard and, and it's been undersold as far as trailers went and the poster went to give it an idea, this is an assassin movie. 
If I didn't know anything, I'd thought it was some orchestral drama. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I thought when I saw the poster yeah. and, it, and it, it didn't sell it. So it's a shame. We're not going to see a sequel to it, but it might be interesting. You know, nowadays, good characters don't stay dead. There's always a life for them on Amazon or on Netflix. Uh, beautiful Day in the Neighbourhood. Can't wait to see it. For me, it's good. But I think that we don't have an association with Mr. Rogers in the UK. No. So you're watching a film about a cynical journalist who has his, life, has his life changed while he's interviewing Mr. Rogers. And all the things that he sees as negative in his life, he starts to embrace the positives and trying to make amends for like his wrongdoings and yet he's falling out with his father and things like that and the poor relationship. And it's more a story about the journalist, how he's changed by Mr. Rogers. But I think we need to understand who Mr. Rogers is yeah. for us to be able to appreciate in the UK. In the US, everyone grew up with him. It'd be similar... It's a like a childhood icon from like when we were kids. Well, they are working on a John Noakes movie. I believe. <laughs> uh, the I the, the problem we've got in this it. country is if if they do one based on someone from our childhood, no doubt there comes a part in it that he turns into a creep, yes. and we all turn against him. <laughs> and all the way through Beautiful the Day in the Neighborhood, that cynical part of me was expecting some dark, disturbing revelation about Mister Rogers. But no, he was a genuinely nice guy, and I can't embrace that because I like I like my heroes when I was a kid to have turned me into a very cynical adult because they were turned out to be, well, let's be honest, a bit too touchy-feely. A bit too savile. Can we say that? Is that <laughs> I mean, too soon? Rolf Harris is the one that like, I would directly compare that up until a few years ago, like, he was still very much beloved to all the UK. And then all of a sudden it's like, no, not Rolf. I mean, Jimmy Savile, let's be honest, you looked at him in the 70s and yes. you go, yeah, there's something wrong with him. Do you think we'll ever get like a... A ponderous drama about the Chuckle Brothers. <laughs> you know, Netflix are, are always looking for new content. I, I was in the States and, and um, during the 80s a lot, and, and Mr. Rogers was an icon, and mm. I'd never heard of him. So I was I have some awareness of who he was, he was and he is, he is iconic. And uh, I don't think we have an equivalent, but, you know, people like, you know, or at least TV series like Jack and Ori and that sort of thing. It was, that, it was very gentle, very gentle uh, uh, TV. Parasite has finally got its UK release, a Bong Joon-ho's black comedy which focuses on a poor family who struggle to keep afloat, who one by one manipulate themselves into employment by a wealthy family, pretending to have qualifications that they don't. Takes a sinister turn on the second act and goes in completely unexpected directions by the end of it, in the typical way that you expect Bong Joon-ho's films to do. It sounds like my life story, to be honest. (laughs) I absolutely love this film. It's compelling, it's comical. The commentary on the class divide is so well done brilliant film well worth checking out i don't want to talk too much about it because spoilers 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 with something like this but it's a great film if if you're one of these people who goes oh but subtitles just go watch it enjoy it because i, I i've not met anyone yet who's turned around and gone eh, it was you okay. miss out so much when you have that that attitude uh, we finally got lighthouse in the UK as well. We briefly mentioned it last time, but we didn't want to touch on it much because it wasn't actually out. Uh, aging lighthouse keeper training up a rookie on an isolated island. The pair don't click from the start and things get progressively worse as their relationship and sanity begins to break more and more. It's a stunning two-man film. The performances from both the actors, is it just draws you in. The 4-3 framing that they've done it in in black and white as well. Keeps it close. Means that there's nothing distracting you on the edge of your peripheral. You've focused purely on these characters and you are trapped in that lighthouse with them as they're going steadily insane over drinking. Uh, well, they're drinking anything that they can get their hands on by the end of the film. Absolutely brilliant. It's a 
stunningly artistic, but also a very tension-filled, claustrophobic and rather twisted tale. Well worth checking out. Which leads us... To our prime feature. To our prime feature this week. Are we ready? Sure. It's time for Gotham to meet the birds of prey. I own Gotham. He's building an army. Unless we all want to die, we're going to have to work together. Hi, boys. I thought you was just a pretty face. Nothing gets a guy's attention like violence. Yes. Birds of Prey and Harley Quinn. Do that for me, will you? <gasps> now, this was going to be the first time I know. <laughs> that all three of us have seen a film. <laughs> I got stuck on a motorway trying to get home last night, and I was only 20-odd minutes out of town, and there was either roadworks or some sort of incident, and I just couldn't get off the motorway. And I'm seeing the clock tick, tick down. It was like a and a typical Hitchcockian scene. <laughs> like going, no! So, highly disappointed. Guys, fill me in. Tell me about... The Birds of Prey, The Emancipation of Harley, One Harley Quinn. I've added the one. <laughs> I feel like the title needs to be long. <laughs> it's not long enough. So... For those who don't know, or if your your geekism isn't isn't comics, Harley Quinn was a character that actually appeared on Batman the Animated Series, mm-hmm. wasn't it? Um, who, who developed a cult of her own uh, through the comics. A great comic uh, actually pulled in his uh, Mad Love, which is which is brilliant, really. Yeah. Uh, and then she's become a um, an almost an, more of an icon for the image of of Harley Quinn, as opposed to the character herself. I think. Uh, a little bit like Deadpool did in a yeah, way that sort of the mythos around the character became more interesting than the character themselves. And of course, when she got brought to the big screen with uh, uh, Margot Robbie playing her in Suicide Squad, she basically stole the movie. Um, we could talk about Suicide Squad for minutes, um, <laughs> but she was the highlight of the film and therefore had some sort of future uh, future career. Uh, as a as a as a spin off character, and that brings us up to Birds of Prey. So Scott, you're the big DC well, fan. Abs- well, I think the the better moments of Suicide Squad and and the parts they promised and the parts you hoped they'd lean on was that more sort of punk rock anarchic side of this sort of ensemble villain team, and it for whatever reasons everyone's got a different theory. Uh, it didn't quite get that tone right because it's mishmashing. We are more serious and. DCEU, whatever take. But this is exactly the tone I originally hoped for with the Suicide Squad film. It's it's punk rock, it's anarchic, it's character-led in its anarchy, and it's just fun and colourful and brash. And all right, there's not much layers in it if you put a, if you if you want to cut it open, but it's just fun and you like the characters do the talking, be themselves and create everything that happens on screen. Narratively, um, scenario wise and so not every joke lands but the just feel of the fun the film is just overriding fun and joy and you, you sense a love so where and you can't help but gravitate to one of the characters because you're throwing enough stuff at a wall i think you and mcgregor as a roman sionis black mask is wonderful <laughs> see um yeah i'm not overly familiar with black mask uh, not being like heavily versed in the DC mythologies, how do you think villain, the re- yeah. how do you think the representation of him 
was he's, in comparison to the he, comics. He's like quite a lot of B and C list Batman villain. He's, he's, he's an idea that can be fleshed. So it, his original idea is just, you know, he's a, he's a rich guy who moonlights as a mob boss who's got some issues because he's wearing a black mask made of his mother's coffin. Whereas this goes for a more quirky sort of... Um, what do you describe? Spoil sort of gets everything he wants, can't understand he's not the centre of the universe sort of person and plays up the comedy of the character and adds a yeah, bit it, of flesh to his bones. It, it definitely draws on the whole, like, he wants to be in charge of everything and he owns people and he yeah. owns them and she belongs to me and he belongs to me all the way through it. He chews the scenery throughout and he's marvellous. Do you want uh, to give us a quick rundown on the plot? So the plot is, the, it's a MacGuffin plot. It's narrated by Harley Quinn. They start, so we have the unreliable It narrator. starts off, she talks about the breakup, breakup of her and Joker and how she's getting past it. And then it jumps forwards in time and then it goes, oh, no, I've gone too far forwards. And then she goes back and backtracks to fill in some of the gaps. The MacGuffin is a diamond that is being sought by multiple people. And it's all about all the stories of all the different people as they intertwine and intersect to get this diamond for one reason or another. Whilst Harley basically takes a young girl under her wing to um, shelter her from the harm that she could get to. That it's a very similar to Deadpool. I mean, Deadpool's the perfect yeah, like comparison yeah. here because there wasn't much of a story there. It's more about the journey through it and how everyone interacts going along it and jumping backwards and forwards. And definitely like similar to Deadpool in the use of graphic violence in a comedic nature. There's not a lot that you can touch on story-wise without actually dropping some pretty heavy-handed spoilers for some of the nice little twists that it does take. I will go on record to say that when Birds of Prey was first announced, I was excited. Then it became a Harley Quinn movie and I lost a bit of interest. I mean, I remember talking to you about yeah. it that I was like, oh, it doesn't have to be a Harley Quinn movie. And all my fears of it being a Harley Quinn movie were there on the screen. But I thoroughly loved it because it was a Harley Quinn movie introducing the Birds of Prey. Is this, do you think, for Margot Robbie, the sort of the, the role that she will now always be associated with. Has she has she done what Ryan Reynolds did with Deadpool and just the, the two of us? She owns it. She she completely owns the role. She, I mean, she was behind the production of this as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she was in the same way that Ryan Reynolds like was behind the production on Deadpool and campaigning for it to get made. She's done the same with this, and she wants to do the same going forwards with other projects with Harley Quinn. She clearly loves the role, and because she's the narrator of this story. You've got, similar to what we have with Joker, where it's an unreliable narrator, some of the events are so fantastical. It's like, wow, this is what it's like to be in Harley's mind. Yeah. And there's a, I mean, you'll have seen it in the trailer. There's a, a little Diamonds Are Girls Best Friend number. And it's only a very short segment when she's basically hallucinating this whole thing. And it's so well played. And it, it you just sit there chuckling and wanting to watch that one scene again just to see the, the little nods that it's doing in it. It's... it's like you said, it's it's a punk rock kind of music video kind of aesthetic that Suicide Squad tried to get. But because this has been built from the ground up with that in mind, yeah, exactly, it yeah. feels better about it. And it flows with it. There's, there's like character names pop up on screen when they get introduced and like little reasons why people hate Harley coming up at the bottom of the screen and loads of little gimmicks and all that. And it's, it's just fun to watch. It's so much fun. I belly laughed multiple times through the film. And when I wasn't belly laughing, I had a big beaming smile on my face. I loved it from start to finish. And the action. Once again, we get John Wick style of action where the camera is backing off and letting you see the choreography going Excellent. on. And it's marvellous choreography. There's some 
fight scenes with like about 14 or 15 different people all interacting at some point in the scene. And you're never at any moment confused as to what's going on. You're always following everything. Even the, even the stupid things like, when did you get time to change your shoes? Are just thrown in there and just go, hey, I don't care. This is fun. Absolutely great film. It looks amazing. She is front and centre owning this whole thing. And the Birds of Prey getting introduced into it. it it's... It's like an origin story for the birds of prey, where the birds of prey aren't the origin story. Right. And it's only toward like towards the back end of the film that it's like, oh, now they start to come together. Just the, so the last point on this, does it tie in to what started out as the greater DC universe? I um, this is what I found weirdly most heartening because obviously it continues in the vein of the more fun, self-contained new DC direction. But this film's not ashamed of the fact it's a Suicide Squad spin-off. Right. It's quite open and bold about the fact this is not your first introduction to Harley Quinn and all that is quote-unquote canon. But doesn't lean on it. Doesn't doesn't ask you to go and watch it even. Just just accepts it's part of it and moves on, which is the best of both worlds. And It's what we've said on an earlier episode that you know DC uh, seems to be taking this approach now of each film as an individual film modelled around the characters that it's showing. So Joker was a dark drama. This is a fun, frenetic action film with like a really good sense of humour. Aquaman was pure comic book entertainment. Shazam was heart. They're all making them specific for the characters with the little nods to tie them together to yeah, each other loosely. Amazing. They're not doing that force. I mean, like or hate what Zack Snyder was doing, yeah, he was doing a forced narrative. He mm. was like pushing it in one direction and making it that you had to have really seen the previous film in order to enjoy the next one. They're all individual films now. And if you watch them all, you'll see little links between them, but you don't need to be embroiled in the whole lot of the mythology in order to appreciate each of the films. Well, that's how Marvel started. Or yep. At least ease the way into the idea of the greater narrative and then, and then you can get more clever. And just... it's how comic books as an art form are presented. Mm. Yes. You can read Amazing Spider-Man and not know anything about the Avengers until Captain America pops up in Amazing Spider-Man, and you never feel that you've really missed out on part of the story because of it, because you're following this character. And that's how it should be, and that's where DC are going right at the moment. I want this to be a huge success, because I don't want Warners to start second-guessing themselves again and backing off and starting to meddle behind the scenes and interfere with the creators, because clearly they are letting the creators have more control now. And this is where This is what we get from it. An absolutely exciting film. That I, as soon as we finished watching it, I wanted to go straight back in and watch it again. It's like an adult cartoon, isn't it? Yes. So that's Birds of Prey. The Fantabulous Emancipation of Harley Quinn. I'm glad you said that. And that's playing in all cinemas right now across the country. Hey, across the world, but we don't know how far we reach. Oh, what was the last thing I saw? I saw the Harley Quinn movie, which I thought was okay. I didn't love it. I didn't gush. Uh, but you've seen that's quite fine. a lot. I, I really enjoyed Harley Quinn. That's good. We, see, we, we can debate. We're not going to fall out of a Twitter war. Wait until I'm on Twitter later. I'll be slagging you off. <laughs> I've, along with watching some new films, I've also been delving through the back history of Oscar-nominated films. Ah, yes, your personal quest. Yes, uh, I went through the Meet the Awards app and marked all the films from Oscar history from the very first one onwards that I wanted to see. I've got a watch list of about 400 films now. In fact, you mentioned to me last time we caught up that you were about to watch, and I highly recommended it, The Sting. Yep. 
Did you watch it and did you enjoy it? I did, yes. I mean, I watched, but Butch Cassidy was one that I watched for the first as time as well. you know, my all-time favourite film. Logically, I had to go on and watch The Sting yeah. after that. I absolutely adored both films. They are those two just worked so well together. I did a whole like Entos discussion around Paul Newman, and those films came up quite frequently. What a what an actor Newman was in his in, not even in his heyday, even later in life. Uh, but I also emotionally crippled myself over a few days because I watched Marriage Story, still to watch, and really like felt like impacted with it. I finally got round to watching Dancer in the Dark, Lars von Trier's. Not a film I'm film. a big fan of. Um, it destroyed me. It's, it's emotionally grinding. It, it absolutely... I, I want to watch it again, but I need to leave myself a good few months before I can I, I'd approach that one again. I'd say years of therapy in between. And then I finally got around to watching Kramer versus Kramer the next day. Oh, fantastic. And you must have sobbed for days then. I, and... I was a wreck. <laughs> I need therapy now. This is. The, I, I then made sure that the next few films were going to be like lighter entertainment, so I've now got my next lot to work through. But aside from catching up with old films that, seriously, I should have watched these years ago, these are real big holes in my viewing. Classics, absolute classics. Um, of the new films that are out at the moment, got to see Sonic. I'm Sonic. I'm here to protect my friends. The government wants to dissect you and arrest me. We gotta lay low. Let me show you how it's done. Time to go. I'm coming for you. That was an illegal left, by the way. Here comes the boom. You're not dead. I have no idea. Sonic the Hedgehog. What? I'm okay. Sonic the Hedgehog, as for those who don't know, based on a popular game. Yes, you heard it here first. Based on a popular game. And it's done very well at the box office. It's done phenomenally at the box office. Uh, the brief synopsis is that when his home in Green Hill Zone comes under attack by an unknown menace who seek his powers, young Sonic is given a bag of magic rings to use to teleport to safety, each one able to open a portal into another world. He winds up on our planet and spends his life growing up in isolation, watching the activities of a small town, and in particular the town sheriff, who he calls the Donut King, played by James Marsden. He calls him the Donut King because whenever he's watching him, as any, any cop does, he's eating he's donuts. Donut. However, when an accident raises awareness of Sonic's presence, bringing military and Dr. Robotnik, played by Jim Carrey, to the town, the Blue Hedgehog must team with the sheriff to seek his magic rings and get to safety. The film is everything that I expected it to be it was fun it's a family-friendly video game movie that doesn't try to be anything other than what it is and it's just presenting just over an hour and a half of energy and fun on the screen have we turned a corner then on the video game to movie ideal because we it's it's been a patchy run it, it's always been like a, oh another video game movie Ugh. And they, they end up just being so changed from the video game that they have no relevance to the people who grew up with the video game. But they're paying too much reference to the video game at the same time to alienate other audiences. I think we're hitting a time where they're getting to go, a good balance. Last year's Detective Pikachu did a great job it uh, did. It was a bringing great film, that to the screen and giving a film with some good heart in there. And, and you didn't need to something know, new to it. You didn't need to know anything about Pokemon in order to just go along with the flow and enjoy it. Whilst if you were a fan of Pokemon, you would spend hours picking out every little bit of detail in the background. And yeah, I, th I think we're on this new wave of they're actually embracing the video game heritage whilst not trying to be anything too clever. They're just delivering on it. I mean, upcoming films, video game-wise, we've already mentioned um, Uncharted. 
Uh, there's also Borderlands is in production, but with, with Eli, um, Roth. Eli Roth directing, which is a uh, first person. For those who don't know, Borderlands is a first person shooter game with a really wicked sense of humor and lots of gore and blood. Eli Roth sounds uh, perfectly cho- chosen there. You've got Monster Hunter. You've got Resident Evil getting a reboot. You've got Sleeping Dogs. You've got Tomb Raider sequel on the way. You've got even got a Minecraft and movie. And we was doing that, did you know? That's a, a weird choice. Yeah. Um, Minecraft movie. Uh, Mortal Kombat, more and more. I think we are entering a video game to movie revolution. And it's looking like they're all going to get pretty well received. I mean, the Tomb Raider film got a good reception. It didn't do great, but it did enough to justify them doing the sequel. And it was faithful to the new rebooted video game so well that that was me caught when the first saw the first trailer. And the feedback from like audiences was like, quite enjoyed that. She was great in it as well. She She, was marvellously casted. She really felt like we were watching... Lara Croft, and she had uh, everything about Lara Croft's energy came across in it. I, I think the film sort of drifted in in the second half. I thought it, it it stayed very close to to the rebooted game, but it's interesting. I mean, the main problem you always get is it's clearly games are interactive, and the movie isn't. You're a, you're you're a passive observer, as a, apart from uh, controlling the characters. But the IP on the characters is the interesting bit of. of building those characters up and seeing more of them in a way that you can't do with the game because at some point you've got to get into game territory. The interesting thing with the Sonic one is the the redesign of the Sonic character. Well, that was um, all over. That was the big thing, wasn't it? Yeah, that initial trailer came out and people's knee-jerk reaction was like, whoa, what have they done to Sonic? And then when they went back and finished it and um, tweaked it and changed the design, it got much better reception. Whether that was a deliberate thing, there are conspiracy theories out there to say that there always. It, it was done purposely because they knew that if they had just release the trailer people would have sneered at a video game movie but by releasing a trailer that has this one jarring problem with it but then saying as the film's creators we're going to listen to you the fans i'm going to fix it it got the fans back on board is there another is there any other example of a trailer being released and producers actually listening to what the fans say and and making amends anything spring to mind well justice league when they got rid of zack Snyder. But... <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Just a call back to that one. <laughs> Moving swiftly on to... <laughs> Before we get lambasted. Uh, but yeah, it, the redesign of him looks cartoony in the real world, but you accept it and it, it works. It doesn't look like it should be in the real world, but we don't care because it looks like Sonic and it looks great. It's fun. It's vibrant. It's genuinely, genuinely funny. But I do think a lot of his success has come from that really good feeling that the filmmakers got um, with the audience by saying, we've listened to your criticisms and we're going to fix it in time for the film. And they've delivered it. I, you saw, I mean, again, on Twitter and all social media, you saw people before the film came out saying, I feel that because they've listened to us, I need to reward them. So I booked my ticket for this weekend. So people were influenced by this change of the character. Drop us a line and tell us your favourite game to movie. And I'd be really impressed if someone does say that they love the Super Mario Ooh. film. I, I, I'll just be very pleased if... Loads of people reply to say Silent Hill because that is a great video game movie. It wasn't bad, actually. Moving away from family, fun, friendly um, entertainment. Next film that I've seen is The Invisible Man. And I've not seen it myself. Hey, been hey. waiting all day to tell that. Haven't seen <laughs> The Invisible Man. Are you better than anyone else in the world? We need each other. Adrian is stalking me. He's figured out a way to be invisible. Hello? There you are. Surprise. <laughs> Time to stop playing games. Show yourself. Surprise. The Invisible Man. 
Uh, Lee Wannell's new take on this classic tale sees Elizabeth Moss as a woman who escapes an abusive relationship, but soon finds reason to believe that her ex is still trying to control her life, only has somehow made himself invisible. It's an interesting take. Now, the trailers, when these landed for this, I remember watching the trailer and thinking, have they just shown us the whole film? Because it seemed to just show. Yes, you, I'll agree with you. You, you even that. thought, that, like, wow, I've seen the final scene. That, that's clearly from the final scene. There's a lot of misdirection in that trailer, and there's a lot that they... A lot you show. didn't see. A lot you didn't see. The film is about two hours long, and it's a, it's a well-paced two hours. Starting off with her, like, it literally opens with her sneaking out of the house in the middle of the night away from her abusive partner and climbing over the wall and disappearing. And then it cuts to like months later. And that's when things start to go very strange for her. There's a lot of um, what I like to refer to as paranormal activity style of shots, where the camera will just move away from a person and just look at nothing. But the small little details that take place within that framing, one thing will move or a door will unlock or anything like that. So it, it keeps you constantly like trying to look towards the background from that point onwards. And more than anything, it's a great new take on The Invisible Man. It weaves around. The back end of the, the, the final act of the film has so many rug pulls and little twists and turns. It just keeps you guessing right up to the last minute. Elizabeth Moss, marvellous actress. Yeah. She is amazing pretty much. I mean, I was first introduced to her via Mad Men. Yeah. yeah as we most are. people were. I, I can't help but be absolutely astonished every time that she's on screen with how much she gives into a role. And here she plays a woman who's obviously, com- she's not very confident in herself. That's how she got herself into an abusive relationship. And then she starts to doubt her sanity. And she plays that beautifully through the film. You, there's moments that you start thinking, well, maybe we are just seeing delusions of a mad woman here and this is all fake. She grows, develops and changes throughout the film in a very convincing way. Absolutely brilliant to watch on screen. Watch this um, I watched this in the IMAX down in London while I was down there and it really deserves to be seen on the big screen because uh, some of the effects work are really well done. There's some great little framing uses that I just feel might be lost a bit on the small screen. Interesting. Is this the same? Do we know if this is the same script that they were going to use for the Dark Universe? I don't I've seen speculation online that the Dark Universe ideas just kind of got thrown away and this is a whole new take. And I've heard it said that they're going to try to not weave everything together anymore. They don't need to build this universe and this world-building aspect that this is just its own film franchise. Good. Other films will be their own film franchise. Because they definitely... I mean, let's be honest, The Mummy. Better left raveled than unraveled. Yeah. Put it back in its tomb. Let it do what it, let it... Let it just rot away there. And before we finish, have anything else that you want to uh, you want to review? Dark Waters, which was the big on paper looks like the big Oscar contender. Yeah, I mean, um, story wise and casting wise, this should have had Oscars written all over it, but it didn't even get noms on the Oscars. It, it got completely overlooked. Uh, Mark Ruffalo is a corporate lawyer taking on Dupont uh, Corporation after a family friend shows him how his farm's being impacted by chemical dumping. This is a true story. It's based on the true story. He takes on the mega corporation responsible for bringing Teflon to our homes. Uh, and if anyone wants to research into the true life story of it, this film cover is a good starting point and then spin off your research from there because it covers the long period of the battle. I mean, it's two decades of battle that has taken place to get some justice for people who've been impacted by a chemical that was deemed as being non-harmful and so didn't get any government regulations on it. It covers corporate corruption, it covers government corruption, and it also covers the paranoia that can build up when you feel that you're taking on the big mega corporations that basically rule the world. 
This is a powerful story. Ruffalo is absolutely brilliant in it. Um, he is great. I mean, just people forget now that he's done the Hulk a couple of times and we've seen him more whimsical, but he's, 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 a, he's a strong, strong character actor. Um, and I've seen, you know, even the stuff that he did in Zodiac and, 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 and the work he's done previously, fantastic actor. Yeah, it's a film that also highlights something that is still around us every day. Teflon is still used. There's still no restrictions on it. Some countries have started to try to put restrictions on it, but it's so ingrained in everything. I mean, from nonstick pans to even your carpet fibres are coated with Teflon, that you need to be aware of the possibility that this could be killing you. Admittedly, you have to get it over 300 degrees Celsius before it starts releasing the vapours. But when you're cooking on a hob and your pan burns, you've just released those vapours. And that's the concern is this. I mean, I knew little about this whole court aspect until I watched this film, but now I want to research more. Um, it's another one of those films that because it brings us right up to date, not everything's completely resolved yet. Interesting. But it's a brilliant film about... because. Mark Ruffalo's character is was a corporate lawyer who used to defend the corporations. He would like was from one of the big name uh, lawyers that would always be there to like any any suits brought against such and such corporation. They're the people who like put them down, put them down. So he's flipping to actually attack the biggest corporation of the time. Powerful drama, emotionally powerful, and raising public awareness on issues. And well worth seeing. Okay, so at uh, this point in the program, we are reviewing. Well, what are we going to review? It's it's going to get tough over the next couple of weeks, but I think this may be the last review for a couple of weeks uh, uh, looking ahead. And what are we going to be talking about? Well, today, and this, this is rare that this happens. Normally, we have a few days at least to process. We've had a couple of shows where we, I've seen something before you and you've literally come from watching it. Yep. And so you've got fresh thoughts. But this is the first time that both of us have seen the film at the same time, literally just before we started recording. And what a film. Onward. This wizard staff brings Dad back. I'm gonna meet Dad? Ah, he's just legs! We only have 24 hours to bring him back. We're going on a quest. From Pixar. Oh. Unicorns! Tom Holland and Chris Pratt. My brother is a wizard! Ah, forget it! Barley! Oh no. Disney and Pixar's Onward. Put it in all for Onward! It's everything that you like about Pixar and... That's the redeeming feature of this film because Pixar tell stories that feel eternal and, and have reached a stage with animation that you forget now how beautiful and brilliant they look. They, they reached a stage a few years back, I think probably about Monsters, Inc. for me, when you saw the detail, you were, you were awed by the detail of, of the fur and, and the world around it. And you've kind of moved on from that because you know that a, a Pixar movie is going to look absolutely fantastic, going to be the, the height of, of, of animation and artistry. But they have this element of storytelling that just elevates it, even above Disney for me, and elevates it onto a level where it's a, it's a universal truth and it's a universal story that appeals to everyone. And it's always the story that counts. And the, and the Pixar movies that aren't as good are where they've kind of lost that. I'm looking at Cars, cars 2. Yeah. yeah. Where it tried to do something different than Cars, but for the wrong reasons. Yeah. But actually came back with Cars 3, which... Which, which was more in tone with the first film. Yeah. And I, I consider that the creed yeah. to Rocky, yeah. Cars, the Cars franchise, because it's that handing it over to a new yeah. generation kind of story. Onward 
it's set in like an alternate earth of fantasy and myth where magic and dragons reigned and then people got a bit lazy and technology started to develop and it's taken over. And magic has got pushed out of the forefront. So uh, magical beasts such as unicorns exist, but they are now... The vermin. Vermin. <laughs> they, eat, they eat garbage. And elves and trolls all live in a society, which is our world, basically, but they are it's populated by fantasy creatures. Uh, and in two particular fantasy creatures are two brothers, voiced by Chris Pratt. And Tom Holland. Both from Marvel, of course. Yeah. And... Um, go on a quest, which is a kind of inspired by sort of Dungeons and Dragons, really, isn't it? Chris Pratt is the older brother who has some memories of the father before he passed away, but has not really made much of his life, but he's obsessed with history. And history here is he plays tabletop board games, yeah. like a Dungeons and Dragons kind of aspect, but he keeps insisting that this is based on actual history. This is based on history, even though everyone else dismisses it as just a daft game. And Tom Holland is the younger one who doesn't remember the dad and never had that relationship with him. And kind of lives his life in, in fear. He kind of, Tom Holland basically replays Peter Parker to, yeah. a, to a degree. And um, they are given a gift and a gift from, from his deceased father that you can spend one day with the father uh, as part of a magical spell as a gift for, for both brothers. And it all goes wrong and a, a quest exactly like the D&D quest unfolds through this world and they go in search of trying to resurrect their half their father, which is part of the running gag because the, the dad has only come back as his legs. I know it sounds complicated and it is complicated to a degree. And and, and this is where it works beautifully because it, it's the setup. Kind of reminded me of Monsters, Inc. because you, you, you're thrown into this world and it's beautiful and it looks great and you, you accept it, and in the first part of the film is you're shown around this world and, and, and you become absorbed in it. And then the characters go on the quest to try and bring back their father. And it's a good romp. It's good fun. And then something crucially happens in that suddenly makes it into a Pixar film. The, the heart hits in that last half, and, yeah... I I don't know what it is with Pixar films. Whenever I watch them at the cinema, I, I, there must be dust flying around. Yeah, something got in your eye. So, like towards the end of the film, I've actually like I'm starting to like tear up, and it it can't be the emotion of it. No, it it really hits you in that like personal way that films like Coco have up did. You know, when Pixar managed to catch your emotions, they really do it in a solid way that makes you reflect on your own life at the same time yes. and start to think of own memories similar, and it just brings you to like utter tears in a good way and that's what pixar do don't you think it's it's that they tell a story that that suddenly you suddenly realize what it's really all about instead of it just being and it could have easily been a, just a, a grand just adventure a and it would have been a lot of fun and we would have enjoyed it and it looked it would look great and we we would laugh in the right places and, and as we explore this world and explore the relationship between the two two brothers but pixar have this thing of where they take it into into the stratosphere of storytelling and it becomes about something and it's it's always there it's always there in the first act and then it reveals itself and that's the essence of of why they're an amazing studio they know how to tell a human story even with anthropomorphic characters or or elves in this case they they touch upon something which is a, a universal a universal story and they do it so so well and it's it's a it's a beautiful film it's not got the elements that like a Wally had, where which is a game changer. It's certainly not a game changer of a movie. It's just a very, very good 
film in its own right and a, and a great Pixar film. Uh, and I don't know where they can go next with it because, you know, they've given us a Toy Story 3. They've given us a Wally. They, they, they deliver these films time and time again. And every time we go, eh, you know what, maybe they've reached that point. And then they then something comes along. And I've just seen the trailer for Soul, which looks beautiful. Yeah. And um, uh, if you are in the situation where you can get into a cinema, then go and see. Uh, Good luck with that. Yeah, that's that could be a question itself. Trying to find this film (laughs) because it is well worth seeing. Interestingly enough, there is a short which I didn't realize that 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 there was going to be with this film, which is an introduction, basically welcoming the Simpsons to the to the Disney yeah to the Disney uh, uh, franchise. It was a a little Maggie short. Yeah, which basically didn't have to pay any of the actors, and it's got some great little visual moments within that. And it, I I fell out of favor with like watching the Simpsons on TV quite a while ago. But that makes me want that short makes me want to watch The Simpsons again because it reminded me of how The Simpsons can just really catch you. Yeah, it can really like make you chuckle. It does little nods to other franchises in there. It's a great little short, and it, yeah, we're so used to like Pixar films having a short before them, but it's normally a Pixar short. Yes, yeah. so it was very refreshing to actually get. Oh, actually, no, the it, this is not a Pixar, but it's got the same kind of feel, and it makes you realize that how good the output that disney can give us now and maybe we might get a simpsons movie at some point could be i know there's already been one but they've always speculated they might do another if the right story comes along let's hope so because i i i've got some love for the simpsons movie it wasn't i think there was a lot of expectation with what we what you're going to expect what was going to deliver would it be would it be an absolute game changer it felt like um, an extended episode but then again so it should yeah because it's the simpsons and it did Steal Stephen King's Thunder. Yeah, with um, yeah. Let's not mention Under the Dome by Stephen King because it's <laughs> it's not his best of books, and it definitely wasn't his best of the adaptations. It was so big a book that I now use it to hold the shed up. Hey, well, at least it's got some use for you. So uh, yeah, this... go, go and watch onward if you that, get the chance. Yeah, if you get the chance, and if not, it'll be on Disney Plus soon at this rate. So uh, let's hope that it gets the audience that it deserves. So, because cinemas are closed, uh, and we mentioned this last time, there's no films to review. But what we have done is we've we've decided we're going to take a deep dive on a famous movie. And after, well, much wrangling with technology, Scott has finally got to see and uh, what we I think is a piece of iconography as far as filmmaking goes, and that is Highlander. Now, this has been a running joke with me and Scott for years, because every time I mention Highlander, because I watch it at least once a year. And he'll always just look at me and go, I know you're still going to hate me, but I've still not watched it. For years this has gone on, that he's never going to watch it. So the fact that he's finally gotten around to it, that, that you, you just don't understand the warmth that's going through my soul at this point in time. I'm just hoping he doesn't break my heart now and say that he thought it was stunk. Well, <laughs> before you start, before you give it anything about it let's just um let's just do a quick review of what when the film came out and a little bit of a uh, a reminder of it because you were born different men will fear you try to drive you away i am Connor mcleod
is me weaker than mine. There can be only one. So, Highlander, so for those who don't know about Highlander and the Highlander franchise that, that came from it, Highlander came out in 1986. It's basically it's a fantasy action adventure. It was directed by Russell McKay, who comes straight out of music videos. And he directed a lot of the more iconic 80s music videos for bands like Duran Duran. He did Wild Boys. Well, you know, you name it. Russell Mackay probably did it in that that particular period. He'd made one previous film, which was a film called Razorback, which is well worth checking out. And then along comes this. And it chronicles the climax of an age-old battle amongst immortal warriors. Uh, and it's de- depicted through interwoven past and present day storylines with this bill to be only one. It starred Christopher Lambert as the eponymous Highlander, Sean Connery, who was an Egyptian who spoke with a great Scottish accent, Clancy Brown as one of the best screen villains we've ever seen, and Roxanne Hart. I was the right age when this film came out that it just captured my attention. This whole story of like Connor McLeod from the Clan McLeod, the time of the gathering coming up, and the Kurgan hunting him down, and for some reason all the immortals have to kill each other so there can be only one. Don't know why. We don't understand the lore of it, but you just accept it. And um, all that, just all the flashbacks to his earlier life of like discovering he's immortal, his training, um, his loves, and his life through the ages, juxtaposed against the modern day setting. Now, it was a very, very stylish film, and it, and of course, it did get that that at the time it wasn't a critique. I think looking back on it, but it looks like a music video. It's it's incredibly stylized. Every shot is a work of art to a degree. It's therefore dated quite a quite a lot because of the look for it uh, and the style of it. And we, we've we've not mentioned that it had a great soundtrack by Queen as yeah. well, uh, with a couple of songs which are iconic in their own league as, as Queen songs, but which you don't often think that they came from from Highlander. I've got a quite a personal connection to this film, which we'll we'll get on to. It's a film that didn't do very well initially on it on its run, and it and it failed. Uh, we got a very different cut in the UK. Than the Americans got, which is came out a few years later on DVD as I think it was called the Ultimate Cut, which was basically the European cut. So a couple of the scenes that played out the the, the sh- there's one particular scene where um, Connor McLeod, played by Christopher Lambert, tackles some Nazis, which wasn't in the American version. So there was there was different cuts all over the place. It did better in Europe than it did in the States, but even then it built up a cult following and created several sequels, a TV series, an animated series. Uh, there was a comic book run. So it, it really played its part of being a bit of a, of, a, of a bit of a cultural icon. So now, Scott, we'll ask you, what did you think to Highlander? Well, as it started, and uh, obviously the Queen soundtrack's bellowing, and uh, I'm seeing uh, Michael Hayes and the Fabulous Freebirds uh, enter a wrestling <laughs> ring to a very uh, obvious 80s uh, setup and get-up. Uh, I thought... Oh no, I'm gonna love this, aren't I? Um, and and then it's it's very um, odd because it's 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 tonally and uh, very much like um, it's very schizophrenic, really, and and patchy and jumps about and and these, but within that within there, there's there's interesting creative decisions. Like there's lots of interesting transitions and shot setups and stuff that. Like I think you put it best, it, it makes it a bit music videoy, and yes. undeniably eighties. Yeah, it, it's almost like a eighties artifacts 
screaming its decade at you with, with every artistic decision. Which, inter- interestingly enough, when you see it, when when I saw it when it first came out, it that was very much the style because music video was was so prominent and and it was feeding into everything at that point. It was feeding into, uh, of course, MTV was huge and what what mtv is today is uncomparable to what it was back back in 1986 tv programs like miami vice were starting to take on that particular look so it was a, a look that started to permeate across um, all mediums you know tv commercials and music videos were so so tied close together and i think this was the real f- first film that had that that ethos to it that looked like every shot was designed and could be cut straight into a music video of course, now that feels incredibly dated and and deservedly so. It was it was a, a time capsule for for that period of filmmaking. But I think it, Highlander really was the first film that adopted that that music video uh, mise en scène and, and style, and, and it runs all the way across it to sometimes at, uh, where the plot isn't as strong as the visuals. Uh, yeah, plot wise, it's all over the place. There's a lot of things that don't make sense. Continuity errors everywhere in the film but i have so much fun watching it despite the flaws of it on some of my regular rewatches of it i've sat with mates who enjoy it as well and we'll sit and pick holes with the whole film whilst loving what we're seeing connery is chewing up the scenery whenever he steps out into like frame lambert is struggling to sound like he even knows english let alone being from scotland and apparently he needed to phonetically learn his lines because he couldn't actually speak english when they were filming and uh, clancy brown is just dominating every every second that he's appearing with a completely over-the-top performance it's such a pantomime kind of performance but it just keeps me going it just keeps me enjoying it and having fun and you, you talk about connery uh, at that point connery wasn't uh, was it was a star that had that had waned to some yeah, degree it, was, it, was it wasn't until untouchables that he came back in a big way he was doing sort of smaller films that did Gawain and the Green Knight, which was a much smaller film than what it, what we were used to with Connery. He wasn't the big star that it, that he then became again, thanks to The Untouchables. So it, it was quite a coup getting someone like Sean Connery into that film because the budget was was okay, but it wasn't it wasn't a massive budget. It's just odd because it's it's got such operatic themes, yet it's got like a proper soap opera acting class. <laughs> <laughs> And yet Clancy Brown's chewing all the scenery so much, it's 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 cud. <laughs> but yet, every five minutes I go from loving it to guffawing to <laughs> to a knowing smile, and then it just it just kept spinning me round and round over I can, I can certainly see why it's beloved. I mean you mentioned earlier about the style of it, the like the camera work and like the way that things are shot. And you also mentioned the wrestling scene, which I knew that that would grab your attention. <laughs> um, but the wrestling scene itself has one of my favourite shots ever put to film, which is the camera tracking around the stadium before closing in on Connor, yeah. who sat in deep contemplation whilst everyone around him is enthused by the wrestling. I think that that every time that I watch it, that just sends shivers down my spine. It's such a perfectly mapped out shot and it just really just draws you into him. Absolutely brilliant. I think one of the things with it, everybody's working over top on their game on it. Everybody gives 120%, and that's including in a lot of the performances. Uh, and Russell McKay had all these these toys at his disposal, which weren't used in films. The, the effect in the Madison Square Garden scene with the wrestling 
was a, a camera that was used for, for sports and never really used in movies. Yeah. So everybody, everybody was trying to do something on it that was was to try and set set a standard, almost with the fact that, hey, we'll make this, we might not ever make another film again, but let's throw everything at this. And there's that sense of, of throwing everything at this. There's, there's one classic scene, and I know this, and I'll, I'll explain my relationship to the film later, but uh, there's a shot where the camera moves up through, I think it's through a fish tank, and and then we're on the lake. It's yeah. one of the, the many transition scenes. At the time, they didn't have the technology to do that. It was almost done by hand, so much so that Martin Scorsese called uh, Russell McKay and, and asked him how he did it because he thought that transition was so good. And there's lots, there's lots, just so much imagination at work in it. Sometimes uh, the, the, to the extent that the, the plot misses out, and you're right, Andy, it is a little bit all over the place. No one can really explain what the prize was because I don't think even the people involved in making the film knew what the prize was. And they painted themselves into a corner, which is why we got we got the sequels, which were all over the place and probably probably worth avoiding if you've not seen them scott and, and don't don't go any further <laughs> but the prize basically painted painted them into a corner but there's so much so much technical imagination at work on it that that everybody gave their all into this film absolutely and and, and that that's definitely what i picked up on it because it because the plot is threadbare and it's it's a bit all over the place pick a lane at times but within each scene i'm i'm seeing such an earnest attempt and such weird sort of ingenuity at times that I couldn't help but smile and enjoy it. And then, obviously, there'd be a line or an, a delivery that would make me guffaw slightly, but it, it, it very much seems like a time capsule film that I imagine if you grew up with, you adore it. I certainly enjoyed it. I, I, I would hesitate to recommend it to people now because I do think it's... If dated the unpolite way of saying it, I think very much a time capsule is the polite way of saying it. Well, it's been mooted for a good few years now for a reboot of the franchise. How would you would you say that that's the kind of story that could be brought to a modern life? Oh yeah, I I, I think the basic framework of a really great plot and film there isn't there, but I think Highlander it's so tied to. The eighties, isn't it, and the creativity of that? Would you would you want to see a quite somber modern take? I think that's the route it would probably go. I don't think you would get the the sort of operatic audacity of it, and that audacity, of course, as, as I said, is runs into the soundtrack by Queen. Every everything is 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 turned up to number eleven, and I don't think we would get that kind of movie now. We'd get a much more realistic, uh, gritty. Uh, streety version of it as opposed to the Highlander that we've got. But this, the same thing for any any remake. If it, if it brings something new to a story, brings in a new audience and say something different rather than just going through uh, a pointless exercise of exploring a, a, a title that people are familiar with, then it, it stands and falls really by its its own nature of whether it's or not it's a good film. And if it can make a good film with Highlander, I think there's a thousand great stories that can still be told around that idea that even the the original film didn't quite get right. Yeah, I agree with that. So, Lee, um, you seem to have a good bit of inside information throughout this chat. Tell us how you've come across this. Well, uh, Russell Mackay, I worked for for a little while. Well, I, I, 
I, I tell a lie. I worked for Russell's manager, a guy called Jerry Laffey, back in the day. Uh, Jerry uh, was involved in helping build Russell's career up from from the from the get get go, uh, and Jerry ended up becoming my manager when I moved into music videos at one point. So. I once had the had the deep joy of sat with Jerry watching Highlander as he basically gave me the inside knowledge of of this particular film, and so I I, I know an awful lot about it. I have actually in my time worn the raincoat that Christopher <laughs> Lambert wore, and it is very very cool. You do actually there's a cut mark on on the shoulder where during one of the the fighting scenes the the coat got cut. Um, so I've I've got a real fondness for the film, but I agree with everything that you say. It is a little bit all, all over the place, but it's a film a bit like you, Andy. I absolutely adore. I'm, I'm trying to work out whether that was a compliment or an offhanded insult. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if I made it clear, but uh, I I really enjoyed it. I think it's a hard sell for some people, unfortunately. So I would I would temper my recommendations, but it's definitely a recommendation. I just knew that because it opened with a wrestling scene. That that's it. You're bought in straight away. Well, I, so, I, I love films. That's why I've been recommending it to you for ages. <laughs> any sort of B movie esque but earnest attempt that's just riddled with things to smile at. I, but it's but it's a recommend, but know your audience. Yeah, exactly. And that's it for another compilation. What more can I say? If you want to get the full show on each week, we cover news, we cover reviews, we cover neat things, and we have general chat about things to do with the film world, as well as occasional banter about politics. Don't let that put you off. In the meantime, not every show goes according to plan, and there's a lot of editing that goes in. So here's a little compilation of some of the most recent outtakes from some of the more recent shows that we've been recording. Hope you enjoy them. See you next time. <laughs> of course, is that? Of course. Are you ready? And some music film. I will never not do that. <laughs> I know. And you should. We should never change the theme tune. And the, th- the thing is, I always cut that out so we just have the theme tune. And then it comes back to us talking about like, oh, we still do that. We still do that. And people don't know what we're doing. So I might actually keep that in this time. <laughs> it shows that we listen to the show. The fact that as soon as we do the intro, one of us breaks out the music in our heads. <laughs> Gone is the time when we've got to change the music. So unless you've tuned in during the uh, uh, seasonal piece, oh god, I can't speak. Unless you've tuned in, such as Soul, Midnight Sky. What else did you get? Wonder Woman eighty four. Uh, Wonder Woman. I'll start that again. Wonder Woman eighty four. What else and was it? Teeth. And Baby Teeth. Baby Teeth. Baby Teeth. Have I must said that teeth. right. And Baby Teeth. Yes. So uh, let me just do the whole section again. So scrub. So we've done. And the earth is basically finished. Some unknown, apo- oh, I can never say that bloody word. Some unknown apoco- apocalyptical, some unknown disaster has devastated. <laughs> I know. Apocalyptical. No, I've said it now. I'm not, I'm not on air. After some unknown apocalyptic, oh, bollocks. After some, <laughs> I can't think it's one of those words, apocalyptical, apocalyptic, apocalyptical. Oh, this is getting so. Oh, no. no. <laughs>
After some... These outtakes are going on to a separate, <laughs> separate episode. <laughs> well, that's it for this week. We will see you next week with a brand new show. Same time, same... I was going to say same bat channel, but that's the Kevin Smith sign-off. <laughs> um, we'll see you. <laughs> that's it for this week. It's always our pleasure. Uh, can't do it on my own. Have to do it with this guy. All right. <laughs> Steady on. <laughs> the segment that we can only call the news, because this man basically jacks into the internet, <laughs> and rather than jacks off on the internet, which you might not want to use in the final cut. <laughs> That's going in the in the edit show. <laughs> Played by Haley Stanfield. Haley Stenfield. Steinfield. Stanfield. Haley Stenfield. I might actually get like a news, like, you know, like the, the news beat. Yeah, yeah, just needs a bit of a, uh, a bit just of a stab a there. Sting. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, in the meantime, you just get me doing it. And he might be one of the last surviving members of. Um, Man's just hit a blank. <laughs> uh, Guardians. Yeah. He might just be. To reprise a role as Nebula in Yay. Thor Ragnarok. <laughs> yeah. Thor, Thor Love and Thunder. Sorry, I'll say that again. In Thor Love and, Th- Love and Thunder. Thunder. <laughs> in Thor. He's just flown out to Australia. So you've got all that. In yeah. Thor Love and Fund- Thunder. <laughs> in, in Thor Love and Thunder. And set about recording the events of his day with plans to use shot fo- footage. With plan- Start that one again. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's going in the edits. Um, with plans to use shock footage. He has. Um, are you going to tell us about um, Lovecraft County's... I'll start again. Do you want to tell us about Lovecraft... I'll start again. Do you want to tell us about Lovecraft Country's Misha Green directing the Tomb Raider sequel? Or have I just given it all away?